Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, we're going to be talking about probably one of the most important questions in all of world history, the thing that made me want to start to study British history in the first place. It is the Industrial Revolution. Now, when I say those words, you probably have this image in your head of a bunch of factories springing up overnight and a bunch of factory workers getting miserable and starving to death, and that's true. But we're going to go a lot more in depth into what the Industrial Revolution actually was. This is a hard thing to talk about, especially after only doing reading about it for a day, because it's probably one of the most studied subjects ever. Um, if you think of the great intellectuals of the past 200 years, mostly they were concerned about the Industrial Revolution and modernity that happened after it. I'm just looking across my bookshelf right now and I see people who are worried about it. Simmel, Marx, Weber, Piketty, Polanyi, uh, Francis Fukuyama. It continues over and over again. Everyone has to have their opinion about it because it drastically changed the way that people worked, lived, and died. But there's a lot of disagreement about what the Industrial Revolution actually was. And in this episode, introducing us to the subject, I'm going to boil down some of the disagreements into about three different stances. So the first stance we can call the traditionalist stance, and that is that the Industrial Revolution was British. It happened in Britain, and a particular set of cultural, social, and geographic factors made it happen in Britain. The modern world, to the extent that it's modern, is a copy of these social, cultural, and geographic factors. Everybody who goes through modernization basically goes through the same script, and that script was written in Britain between about 1750 and 1850. The second big stance is that the Industrial Revolution was only accidentally British, that Britain wasn't all that special, and the things that made it have its Industrial Revolution first were not particularly momentous. This is stuff that is saying, like, that technology wasn't especially important to the Industrial Revolution, that coal was the big factor. It's all decentering Britain from the story of the Industrial Revolution. The third stance is that the Industrial Revolution was only accidentally British, but that there was a unique factor in Britain that allowed it to happen. And this unique factor was some sort of cultural or social or geographic secret sauce. This secret sauce didn't need to be replicated as the Industrial Revolution spread, but it's what allowed Britain to make that tipping point into the Industrial Revolution and modernity. So when you think of the Industrial Revolution, you probably think of this first stance, and a particular kind of this first stance, that the Industrial Revolution was technological. It was a wave of gadgets that swept across Britain, changing the way that people worked. We've met some of these gadgets before, and you can tell that they're British because they have those kind of charming Anglo names, like the spinning jenny, rolling and puddling, uh, new forms of manufacturing coke, right? And because these were capital intensive, which means because they required a whole lot of machinery to work, 
people had to work in new ways, namely in factories. So this is the beginning of capital-intensive factory production because of this wave of gadgets. There's other people in this first stance who take the Industrial Revolution as something more abstract. It's about investing capital. It's about money being able to go to productive purposes. Um, a big representative of this is a guy named Rostov, and his idea is the idea of takeoff. Just like a plane accelerates down the runway and then reaches a certain tipping point and then lifts up, so too do economies reach the industrial age. But instead of speed down a runway, we're talking about capital investment. So what matters is how do you get capital investment to reach a particular high enough point that self-sustaining long-term growth happens? And of course, for Rostov and other people, it happens in Britain. A related idea comes from the Nobel Prize winning Douglas North and all of his friends, and he argues that the important thing that allows this capital accumulation is individual incentives. These change so that people begin to see that it's profitable to engage in institution building. This happens because of expanding markets and different prices of labor and land and other raw materials. These institutions are things like parliament, that establishes rule of law. That means that people won't be worried about the king coming up and stealing all their stuff so they can accumulate capital. Other things like monopolies and trading companies and new forms of credit, these reduce the risks of failure and allow for people to invest in more stuff, which in turn allows this beneficial feedback loop of economies of scale and reductions in transaction costs. If this reminds you of Economics 101, you're not wrong. These guys are all heavily influenced by classical economics. But this first view is kind of gone. We kind of don't take it seriously anymore. And what we're going to be dealing with much more over the next couple days isn't this triumphalist view of Britain making the blueprint for modernity for some sort of particular set of Goldilocks scenarios that just makes it right, but we're going to be talking about some more complicated and a little bit more fuzzy explanations for what actually happens. So one set of critiques basically says that, sure, Britain does whatever it wants to do, but nobody follows a model that Britain lays out. Every Each individual country follows its own path-dependent track towards an industry, and there's a bunch of different endpoints that they can reach. The fact that the Anglo-American model has these big factories with lots of you know, smut-cheeked factory workers is just a contingency. There are other ways that you can organize industrial development, some which aren't even capitalistic. Um, a big example of this is, is flexible craft systems, where people use general purpose machines to make a wide range of quickly shifting products. Uh, an example of this is the Jacquard loom, this cool little proto-computer that was developed in early 19th century in France, and it basically allowed people to put punch cards in that allowed a loom to make very complicated uh, lace work. And this meant that the lace work could be changed very quickly, you didn't have to invest in huge machines, and that the lace could then follow fashion and then sometimes even create it. This form of, of, of flexible craft system is actually a lot closer to what contemporary manufacturing capitalism is like with highly flexible machines. 
Now, the other thing about the Industrial Revolution is that it's a lot slower than we thought it was 30 or 40 years ago. It wasn't this takeoff thing that Rostov was talking about. It wasn't that all of a sudden you got James Watt making a steam engine and then bam, everybody starts to accumulate capital and wages rise and you get a lot of stuff. What we see instead is that you have a really, really slow buildup of economic growth that comes from slowly accumulating capital formation from a lot of times just simple uh, uh, industriousness or uh, agricultural improvements. The 18th century in this is no revolution. It's a really, really slow product that takes about a century to come online. And it doesn't necessarily even matter that there's machines involved in this. This puts us in a different kind of perspective because if we look at the Industrial Revolution like this, we can see other countries that have similar periods of buildup, other periods of time that kind of make this advanced organic economy work. And this camp points out that those genius inventions of Watt and Bolton and the Jacquard, all those things, actually weren't super useful when they were first invented. They needed a ton of micro-inventions to make them actually work. First you had a steam engine made by Newcomen in the early 18th century. Then, 70 years later, James Watt comes around and fixes it up. But Watt has a ton of patents on a steam engine, and nobody can mess around with it until the patents lapse. It's only when the patents lapse and experimenters get to make new kinds of condensers on the steam engine that the steam engine becomes useful for a lot more stuff, like steamships and railroads. Another thing that they point out is that Britain's island status gives it a whole set of benefits that other countries don't have. Basically, it means that Britain can control its own security through a navy, which is relatively cheaper, which allows elites to focus on things like property rights, enclosures, stability, hierarchy, rather than just keeping the barbarians at bay. Then let's talk about this third stance towards the Industrial Revolution that sees the Industrial Revolution as having something particularly British, particularly special. And a really, really great representative of this is a guy named Joel Moikir. And he basically says, look, it's the Enlightenment, stupid. It, the thing that really matters to explain the Industrial Revolution is the Enlightenment. There you get a European-wide community of people who are committed to trying to make the world a better place through studying it and overturning the old sacred cows. They demolished traditional religion, they demolished traditional politics, and they demolished traditional political economy. The big thing here is that movers and shakers and makers and thinkers all started to share ideas with one another, both through personal contacts and through publications and through clubs. So things like the encyclopedia or clubs like the literary and philosophy clubs of the Midlands. In places like this, people like James Watt could rub shoulders with aristocrats who might fund them or who might tell them about the latest scientific knowledge. Um, Science and industry here merge through the Enlightenment, and that's the big change. But the problem with this is that when people actually look at the technology that happened in the 18th century, it didn't really need a ton of science to work. So Moikir is 
revised his view a little bit, and he says, look, the link between industry and science might not be important for the first wave of macro inventions, but it's incredibly important for the subsequent waves of micro inventions that make the inventions actually work. So to take our steam engine example, Watt might not have needed to know about what scientific views of heat were to make his steam engine work. But as new people were taking that steam engine and tinkering it, their knowledge of what heat actually was, their knowledge of new ideas of thermodynamics helped them make better steam engines. Another view like this is called the proto-industrialization view. And the idea is that even before the Industrial Revolution, British and Northern European people were already making stuff, already participating in the labor market, already trying to get rich out of a desire to gain consumable goods. And this led to high wages, capitalist agriculture, and broad markets that laid the groundwork for the Industrial Revolution. So in this view, there's something special, but it's not the wave of gadgets. It is this sort of pre-capitalist mentality that happens in Northern Europe. There's a lot more to this, and I hope to only spend a couple days on this because I want to go quicker through my lists. So tomorrow, we're going to talk about a couple other views of what the Industrial Revolution was, and I will give you my opinion of what it was and why it mattered. Uh, Spoiler alert, I think that the thing that matters is coal. Thanks very much for listening. Um, I have to thank Duncan Barton for the image that we use on our iTunes page and the Facebook page and everywhere, and Jonathan Lear for our intro and outro music. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, and, I don't know, light a votive candle in my honor. I'll see you guys tomorrow.